0: Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh, yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right, welcome back to part three of the extravaganza that is the Lord Peter Whimsey novels by Dorothy L. Sayers. Well, in the last two parts we've covered Dorothy's life. I think we've pretty much covered that. We'll say a few more things about her life, but her, her biography we're covered about as much as we're going to cover, I think, because it tends to relate to her earlier books.
0: Yeah, the points where it parallels the stories and everything and informs them. But... And yeah, she's interesting in and of herself,
1: but you know, most people listening to this won't even know who she is, so uh, we figured if we link it to the books, which we highly, highly, highly recommend you read, um, you'll be able to see how her life connects with her books and informs her books, which I think is makes her more interesting, makes those details more interesting. So that's kind of how we structured it. And we're going to continue on then that vein.
0: <laughs> I may or may not leave that in. <laughs> okay all right uh, take us away mother <laughs> yes
1: so we've gotten up in her oeuvre through um what uh, strong poison right okay
0: Yep. and that's book number oh no sorry um we've gone all the way through have his carcass oh that's right um,
1: that's right we ha- have his carcass very good book and book that number was seven published in 1931 or two 32. 32, okay. So the next book we're going to be covering is, my particular favorite, is Murder Must Advertise, which is 1933. So she kept them rolling at this point because by the time she wrote Murder Must Advertise, she wasn't no longer working out in the workforce. She was full-time writer. This was her gig. Published in America all that kind of stuff, so that she was, she was doing pretty well financially, so that's good. And as we said last episode, the books that she writes, influences of her life on those books tend to be five, six, seven years prior to that, and that's the same case here. Uh, She was working at the advertising agency, again, I'm repeating a little bit from last time to catch up, but that was a period where she'd really needed a job, she'd gotten one, she was finally stable, she'd accidentally gotten pregnant, hit it, had this child, put the child into care with her cousin, and never told anybody. And nobody knew except her cousin, and then later her son found out after she died that she was actually his mother, not his aunt. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Gothic. Okay, so definitely go back, and that's a quick recap of, of her life to this point, but definitely if you haven't heard that episode, it's you should start from the beginning of this series because it'll... Makes so much more sense. Okay, so now we're up to Murder Must Advertise, which is based on the, the physical location, the dynamics, the professional information is all um, directly taken from her work at the advertising agency. So the layout of the building, and there is a, I don't think this is giving anything away because it's. it opens with this, there is a death of uh, someone falling down a, a set of spiral stairs, and there was a spiral staircase It was very dangerous in the place where she worked, and she incorporated that into the the novel just perfectly. And you can go online and you can look at photographs of the actual real spiral staircase.
0: We'll link you to it.
1: Yeah, and this is one of the few uh, where Lord Peter goes undercover. Usually he's just himself, Mm -hmm. but he is hired to go undercover as an advertising copywriter at this agency, and he uses his middle
0: names, Lord Peter. Whimsy. Deeth.
1: No, Lord
0: Peter Deeth
1: breeden Whimsy. Yes. And Deeth is D-E-A-T-H, death. So she gets to play around with that so nicely in the chapter headings, like, death comes to Benson's, and... <laughs> it's really fun. So she plays with that idea throughout, and her chapter headings in all the novels are very clever, and I have to say in some of them, I, don't, I can't even make them out. I don't even know what they refer to. Like, she has this one where it has all, like, card game terms, and I figure... It definitely means something, knowing Dorothy. I mean, she's not going to just, you know, be flippity-jibbit about it and throw things in. But I couldn't make out what they were referring to, so she's smarter than me. (laughs) (laughs) Which is great to read books by somebody who's smarter than you, because they're really giving you something and pulling you along and making it very, very interesting. So anyway, Lord Peter goes to this advertising agency. So he both has to detect and he has to... Uh,
0: maintain a persona. Yeah,
1: well he has to copyright. He has to actually write copy for ads and he ends up being very good at it. (laughs) Much like Dorothy herself. And so this Murder Must Advertise is a standard golden age British mystery novel and at the same time Dorothy brings in as she likes to other elements that she's reflecting. Sometimes uh, there's going to be one called The Nine Tailors where it's all in a fictitious place that is just like her family home as a child and has a bell ringing and there's all of that you know so she can bring other elements and in. in this case she brings in the genre of pulpy thrillers that particularly young boys like to read and the one that she actually mentions it in the book is the blake sexton novels i've never read one i, I imagine they would be terrible but they're the kinds of things where the hero jumps into racing cars and they race around England and there are hidden hidey holes and there are wigs and there's drugs and sex and and, 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 uh, underworld and all, I mean, things that are just like really crazy and lurid. And so she incorporates that into the novel very interesting, I think, in that the novel's intelligent and uh, the mystery is very intelligent,
0: but there's drugs, yeah. there's sex, there's impersonations. <laughs> and yet it blends into the world of Lord Peter Whimsy, too. Yeah, it does. It, it absolutely does.
1: And there's a young office boy who works there, because I guess in those days you didn't have to go to school. You could just go off to work. And so he works there, and Lord Peter befriends him, and they he kind of helps Lord Peter. And he's always reading the Blake Sexton novels.
0: Right. A little meta. Exactly, yeah. exactly.
1: I don't know. I love the richness of the book. I love the multilayeredness. And... It's so there. You get a sense of the physical environment and the people. You, I think the first, gosh, what is it, 30, 40 pages of the mm-hmm. book? Lord of Peter isn't even in it. Yeah, it's it's just, just the office and everybody talking and interacting and the uh, complaining that the people aren't putting their money in for the tea. That, that comes around, because they have elevenses every day. And they go around the tea cart, and uh, that they're, they're not uh, putting into the kitty, and just all kinds, of, like all the, the office politics. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's so realistic. It's so well done. You know she lived it. And she did love working at the advertising agency, but I'm mm-hmm. sure she was glad to be gone. I think she worked there about eight years. So I guess, uh, where do you think we should go? Do you think we should, uh, you want me to talk a little bit about what Dorothy did at the advertising agency, or do you think we should the Um, book a little more
0: let's start with what what whimsy does at the advertising agency and then talk about what dorothy did
1: okay all right well whimsy of course he's detecting so i don't know that we need to go into that he just does a really good job there's all he's always going around snooping going into people's rooms chatting people up making friends with everybody uh and he's out there in the in the evening as lord peter whimsy wearing his opera cape and, and and going out to Wild parties and investigating, and and so he pretends that the Deeth Breeden, who works at the advertising agency, is his cousin, who looks just like him. Because he almost got caught once by somebody at the agency seeing him come out of a what a Rolls Royce or something in his opera cape and and his monocle, (laughs) and so he had to pretend that he was somebody else. So there's a whole again that's very Blake Sexton, the doppelganger, the the doubles and that kind of thing. So that's the mystery side of it. But then on the his cover story. He goes in every day, kind of Clark Kentish. Doesn't he wear glasses? He wears hormone glasses in this, yeah. And he comes in, and he's still perfectly tailored because Bunter wouldn't allow him out of the house. No. (laughs) And he goes, and he sits at his desk, and he is given assignments, and he writes jingles and advertising um, slogans and so forth, and um, he comes up with a good one. Do you remember what it's called? No. Oh. Please read it. It's called Wiffling Around Britain, and one of his clients that uh, he's given is uh, a cigarette company called Whifflets. And so he comes up with something that actually people did do like in the 40s, 50s, 60s, where there would be uh, little cards in the packets and they would be worth maybe prizes or you'd get points or that kind of thing. So she came up with this crazy plan for him. And what, what's really interesting is that when Dorothy was in the advertising agency, she came up with a nationally popular advertising campaign for Coleman's mustard, and it was called it was a Mustard Club, and you could join the Mustard Club, and you I guess you'd get one or two new kinds of mustard every month or something like that. So she took that idea that she she had actually implemented and created, and just went to absurdium. She took it just to the very edge where um, every pack would have wifflets in there going. He says, oh, they're going to whiffle around Britain, so they'll save these packets, and they can get holidays and uh, seaside uh, rooms at seaside resorts. And then they've made it bigger and bigger. They said, oh, we have the whiffless children, and uh, you know, have get perambulators and cribs, and you can get a car and a house. And It's just sort of like they made it bigger and bigger and bigger because they were trying to get people, to, and the purpose of it is to get people to smoke more and more and more, which is what all of these... Marketing, yeah. Yeah, all, this, all of these... Um, things that they offer, all these prizes and points and things that any company offers is just to get you to buy more. And it's really, really hilarious, especially since the name of the cigarettes are Whifflets. And she uses this to lampoon the advertising and marketing world. I think she does it really, really well. Me too. Because in the end of her career there, she had come to see consumerism for the destructive force that it was and begin to regret her participation in it and in providing these marketers with with fodder to pull people in and and also the fact is she does highlight in the book how very dishonest a lot of the slogans are and a lot of the advertising is not outright that you could be sued under you know fraud or get in trouble with the government but what what's called in the law it's, it's called puffery which is a legal term um where well it's not a lie and you're not saying it has something it doesn't you're just bigging it up you know, and that's, that's called puffery, and I you're, like you, yeah, so anyway, that's kind of what her attitude was about her work at the time, she had pretty much gotten disgusted with it, and later when she wrote this book, she really does incorporate that into it.
0: Those layers of satire, but then also there's meatiness and real information about how advertising worked at the time, and probably still works on a lot of ways, that's great. Do you, is there a quote you want to read about? Well, there's
1: some, some, a few things that she has in here that I thought were really good, so I'll re- I'll read a few things, and uh, if it's boring you can, cut, you can always cut it out because yeah. I don't want to go on too long but I just love this book and there's so much good stuff in it first of all, I wanted to read just a, a, little, a little jingle that she came up with for a, a tomato, uh, tomato product just because I think it's very funny it just shows that, that she, what kinds of words she puts in Whimsy's mouth that it actually is something that would have worked in those days but she makes it a little too silly and it says, a meal begun with blags, blags, B L G G is the blags tomato, softens every husband's heart, oh. Hubbies hold their wives most dear, who offer them blags turtle clear. Oh, that's right, it's a soup company. Fit for an alderman, serve it up quick. Rum titty, tum titty, blags turtle thick. <laughs> So he was supposed to sing. Uh, probably sang that on the radio or had it in their various ads and things. It was very very funny. And when they come up with whiff, when he comes up with the whifflets thing, they go into a meeting. And it, it's actually a fairly long couple pages. Maybe I shouldn't read it all. It's uh, they just talk about all the fees and the commissions and and how they're going to advertise and what are the costs and and it's so realistic. They're actually the things that would have been a concern and the ways they would have looked at it because mm-hmm. she really knew from the inside. But ultimately. Um, Mr. Breeden, Lord Peter, aka, uh, he's sitting in on this meeting and he's just, he came up with the idea and he's kind of off in his own world. Uh, they, they say um, that they need to do this to build up their market and to, and to keep building their market and having the market grow. And he says, um, uh, Mr. Pym, who is the head of the agency, this is Pym's agency versus Benson's. Whether people like it or not, the fact remains that unless you continually increase sales, You either must lose money or cut down quality. I hope we've learned that by this time. What happens, asked Mr. Breeden, when you've increased sales to saturation point? You mustn't ask those questions, Breeden, said Mr. Armstrong, amused. No, but really, suppose you push up the smoking of every man and woman in the empire till they either must stop or die of nicotine poisoning. (laughs) We're a long way off that, replied Pym seriously. And that reminds me, this scheme should carry a strong appeal to women, and then, quote, give your children that ha- a seaside holiday by smoking whifflets. <laughs> that sort of thing. We want to get women down to serious smoking. Too many of them play about with it. Take them off scented stuff and put them on to straightforward Virginia cigarette. The gasper, in fact. And that's what they used to call cigarettes, were gaspers. Because everybody knew that they were bad for you. Everybody knew, knew it. We didn't need scientific information. Everybody knew. Despite what the cigarette companies and their denials and, and their BS everybody knew they were called coffin nails that was another word for cigarettes Hmm. and what's so brilliant about this and and prescient about Dorothy Sayers is that in the 1930s she was already aware that women were the open market in post-World War II that's what the cigarette companies finally realized they said oh we've got to get women smoking. And so they tried to build it up, but it really was the 1970s when they captured the, the market for women and really got women smoking because they came up with a product called Virginia Slims. And it's a woman's cigarette. And also 1970s was women's liberation. And part of that was women. nice women didn't smoke. Or if you did smoke, you smoked on the sly and not in front of other people. Usually, in in, in the real people world, not on in the movie world where <laughs> where everybody smokes yeah, all the time. Because they were pushing cigarettes, right, for women and men. They were trying to get people to smoke. So she was really prescient uh, uh, about the first wave of that happening and something that be- became really a core marketing push for cigarettes. So anyway, fascinating. I, I think it's very funny. <laughs> What if they smoke until they either stop or die from deep poisoning? <laughs> <laughs> so good, so good. She's so so brilliant. Then at the very end of the book, this is not giving any plot away. This is, but she does really create a really heartfelt, I think, screed against advertising and the falsity and puffery of advertising. So uh, at the end, he says, so "Whimsy stepped out into Sam into Southampton Row." Facing him was a long line of hoardings, which, if you don't know what hoardings are, they're they're big walls or, or, uh, like, wood walls that are temporary, and then they would put advertisements up on them. Enormous in its midst stretched a kaleidoscopic poster, New tracks for nerves. That's one of their clients that he worked on. In the adjoining space, a workman with a broom and a bucket of paste was unfolding a still more vast and emphatic display in blue and yellow. Are you a whiffler? If not, why not? A bus passed bearing a long ribbon display on its side. Whiffle your way around Britain. The great campaign had begun. He contemplated his work with a kind of amazement with a few idle words on a sheet of paper. He had touched the lives of millions. Two men passing stopped to stare at the hoardings. What's this whiffling business? Alf Alf some English i dunno some advertising stunt or other. Cigarettes ain't it? Oh, whifflets, I suppose so. Wonderful how they think of it all. What's it about, anyway? God knows. Here, let's get a packet and see. All right, I don't mind. They passed on. Tell England, tell the world. Eat more oats. Take care of your complexion. No more war. Shine your shoes with Shino. Ask your grocer. Children love (laughs) laxamalt. Prepare to meet thy God. Bung's beer is better. Try dog's body sausages whoosh the dust away. Give them crunchlets. Snagsberry soups are best for the troops. Morning Star, best paper by far. Vote for pumpkin and protect your profits. Stop that sneeze with snuffo. Flush your kidneys with fizzlets. Flush your drains with sandfect. Wear wolf fleece next to the skin. Pops pills pep you up. Whiffle your way to fortune. Advertise or go under. Boom. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, I, I don't know. I, I guess there's not really much more to say. I you know, listen to these podcasts on books and movies, and as, as much as I do enjoy them, sometimes I find that the discussions just go into the weeds. They just talk and talk and talk and tell them, and this, oh, and then this character and all that. And really, especially if you haven't read the book already, it, get, it gets a bit long, mm-hmm. and you're thinking, okay, wrap it up already. I start doing that 10-second forward thing on okay, uh-huh. and the, and the next one. So I don't want to make Murder Must advertise that. Do you think we've said enough about the atmosphere and really set it up? Because I have great feelings about this book, but...
0: Yeah, it's the, really lovely. Okay, one thing that I do want to mention yeah. um, about Dorothy's advertising campaign is another thing that she came up oh, with that yeah, we will all recognize. Yeah. Um, the Beer Guinness, very famous. Um has an old uh, mascot that is a, a toucan, and so you'll see. And I saw one in an Irish pub near my house the other day. But you'll see these old advertisements with a toucan with like a a tall pint of Guinness balanced on its nose and whatnot. And she came up with that.
1: Yep, that's Dorothy, and she worked with the artist and came up with the whole conception and everything. That was really probably her. You're right. That was probably the, the crown, the jewel in her crown, probably. as an advertiser, <laughs> as a copywriter. Yeah. Very good. Okay, um, and what is our next book?
0: Um, Moving on in Dorothy's so life, and I believe work? we jump straight into Nine Tailors now.
1: Okay, now this is really one of your favorites.
0: Yeah, I don't. Know. I mean, I
1: like it quite a bit. It's just it's not in my top three.
0: Right. I would say where Murder Must Advertise is this like rich, meaty tapestry. It's very colorful. There's cricket in it. There's a bunch oh of other yeah, there's an
1: awesome cricket game. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, we got to go see cricket someday.
0: Yeah. <laughs> There's so much fun stuff in that one, and it's it's got some great, like, really satirical commentary and all this good stuff. So I would I would almost stand these two up next to each other and say these are two of my favorites for very different reasons. They're like bookends
1: in her style. Yeah. Uh, they're, like, really the opposite extremes in her style, both really good and interesting and engaging.
0: Nine Tailors is a much more serious work, I'd say, overall, or, like, serious in tone. It's set, as you said before, in this fictional Uh, Part of the countryside of England that's modeled on a place, the place she grew up in, very pastoral hills and dikes, traditional English
1: high church, uh, Anglican. Maybe you should describe a little bit about the topography because I don't know if people know what fens are. I didn't until I started reading these old English books.
0: Would you do that? (laughs) Okay.
1: Basically, the fen, the fens, and so forth. Is for a long time uh, naturally a lot of England is underwater. Um, and what they did was I think it was during like one of the King Charles's or King James um, they decided they needed this land for farming and so forth to live on so they built all kinds of dikes to hold the water back and to uh, basically drain the land. Reading this book I couldn't quite exactly picture it but they have sluices and I guess that they have they have directed the water into little waterways where it naturally would just spread out over the whole land. And then they direct it so they can open sluices and let the water through and close them off and hold the water back, depending on what they need to do. So this piece of land, other than one high point where the church is on it, would naturally be underwater.
0: And so it creates all these twisting, you know, silver water features throughout the countryside, and that really characterizes the entire novel... And
1: the roads are somewhat limited to where they can go and how they can wind because of the various waterways. As we know in Seattle, water can uh, (laughs) very much direct how you can travel.
0: Totally. So a few of my favorite things about this book. One of them is that this is a very emotional book based on feelings of nostalgia Um, It's centered around the church in this community, like the one she grew up in. There's a lot of depth of feeling there. She also gets to be rather poetic, which we know that Dorothy wrote poetry. Some of it's not very good, but she can tap into a very poetic style of writing, which I love, and I'll I'll read a quote later about that.
1: And when she does it in... In the prose, as part of the prose, it's quite beautiful and works very well. It's very evocative. Whereas I don't think when she writes just pure poetry that it seemed to be very successful, apparently. I haven't read any of it, but it's not considered successful.
0: So, one of the, the major facets of this book, or sort of the premise that she plays with the entire time uh, while the mystery is happening, is a thing called campanology, which is bell the ringing. ringing of bells. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Here's a quote about campanology. This is
1: from directly quoted from Dorothy L. Sayers in The Nine Tailors. and She says, The art of change ringing, that's what they call it, is peculiar to the English, and like most English peculiarities, unintelligible to the rest of the world. To the musical Belgian, for example, it appears that the proper thing to do with a carefully tuned ring of bells is to play a tune upon it. By the English campanologist, the playing of tunes is considered to be a childish game. The proper use of bells is to work out mathematical permutations and combinations. When he speaks of the music of his bells, he does not mean musician's music, still less what the ordinary man calls music. To the ordinary man, in fact, the peeling of bells is a mon- monotonous jangle and a nuisance, tolerable only when mitigated by remote distance and sentimental association. Now, we've all heard change ringing. I didn't know what it was. I had never, I didn't realize what it was. Actually, until I read this book. Because it does sound like just a bunch of jangling bells. And I thought, like... The church
0: bells in a movie when they get married. Yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. Or, you know, the, the... royal babies born or whatever and she's like bah, 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 that's what it sounds like to me and and i just thought everybody went in with the bells and got their string their ropes and they just pulled and pulled and pulled as fast as they could and that's what it was and that's how how wrong could i have been
0: incredibly not the case <laughs> we'll link you to some videos in the uh, show notes so that you can experience it for yourself if you like but and it's
1: totally worth doing that. We really wanted to find something to actually put in the audio here, but we couldn't find anything transferable.
0: I might be able to record it off YouTube onto the computer. Yeah, try
1: then... that. Yeah, try that and see, because it's really worth it because there are two specific ones that she mentions in here, which I don't even remember what they are.
0: Oh, here I have a couple of notes. There are a few different names for each Yeah, they, of... they,
1: they each have an each, uh permutation mathematical permutation has its own name
0: yeah. So there are a lot of them they're kind of silly sounding there there's like Steadman's triples trouble bob major and there's a lot of lingo like you hunt the bell up through the pack and it's like there's <laughs> a very metaphorical like a like a fox uh, hunt or something yeah yeah and then of course the title nine tailors of the book is maybe one of the most classic patterns of bell ringing it's a series of rings that tell you that somebody in the parish has died and then it also gives information to the listener that understands it about man or woman how old things like that
1: yeah that's right and when I read the book I actually didn't well when I first read the book there really wasn't the internet <laughs> that's how old I am but uh the, the second or third time I think the second time I read it I was able to get on and there was a YouTube and I went on and I looked up like the triple bob and the nine tailors, are, and I listened to them. And when you listen to them side by side, you can hear the difference. They are different, but I couldn't tell you how they're different, and my ear is not attuned to it. But it was very, very interesting.
0: Mm-hmm. Very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty fascinating, and it, again, it's um, that meatiness to Dorothy's writing, that sort of tuned inness and curiosity about the world. Well, also, it's her intellect
1: and her, her scholarly bent, because she really could have been an a- academic, and in a, in a later book, Gowdy Night, they do talk about how Harriet Vane, you know, she really had the choice. She could have stayed and been a scholar and done research. And she, instead, she went out in the world and became a, a detective writer. And really, that's Dorothy. Mm-hmm. Um, she loves researching. She won't write about something unless she knows it thoroughly. And she's a master of it. And in this case, she definitely um, mastered the knowledge of campanology and wrote about it, and the book has been criticized Mm -hmm. as being more of a treatise than a mystery novel. Uh And let's just say up front, I do find it's interesting from a point of view of the terminology and how they ring, but I don't understand it. I don't have a picture of it. I don't know what it means. And so now when I read the book, I just skip over that because I've read it a couple of times and I don't need to again because I don't get any information from it.
0: But it's pretty fascinating. I do think what you just said was very apt in that it it is, the book itself is almost a thesis on campanology. But what I like about it is that overlying the sort of metaphor, the way it ties into what's happening in the community, life and death. Dorothy's obviously, she's a religious and she's a theological writer later in life. Mm -hmm. And so she taps into that, but it's accessible because it's a story.
1: Yeah, and also she captures, again, the politics the community, the sociology of being a bell ringer because it is a group activity and there are there's a pecking order mm-hmm. and there's a an apprenticeship period and I also note that they're all men mm-hmm. and I don't know today if that's the case. I, I suppose I imagine that it's about upper body strength because originally those bells are really they he- heavy. They're really heavy until you get going. It's only pure arm strength that can, well, it isn't pure arm strength because I guess when they end, they tip the bell up. Mm-hmm. So the first thing is a down swing so you've got the momentum to start pulling them. But, but they pull these for hours, and so you have to have a lot of upper body strength. So maybe that's why women didn't participate, although I'm sure today they could or they should be able to. So there's a lot of he's in there.
0: That's true, yeah. And the small town has its own life. Each of them have personality and character study
1: There's the old, grizzled veteran of bell ringing. Oh, I love
0: his name. (laughs) Oh, Hezekiah Lavender. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. that's right. And then there's
1: the young whippersnapper who's Mm -hmm. eager to be up and coming. And, of course, Whimsy, he can bell ring. Yeah, so he (laughs) he
0: rolls into town because his car broke down or something. And then they're like, oh, no, we need one more bell ringer for the church to ring (laughs) in the new year. And he's like... I bell ring, <laughs> like a professional. <laughs> because they, they bell ring for like 12 hours, don't they? Yeah.
1: I mean, unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> People bring them water and feed them beer. And right,
1: things. and they can take, and there are standbys who will, like they can take a break for 10 or 15 mm-hmm. minutes, but they are pulling those bells until they drop, pretty mm-hmm. much.
0: And you have to keep track of all, all that math. Right, you, yeah. have to, you
1: have to know exactly where you are within the change,
0: mm-hmm.
1: as they call it, uh, and and not get behind or ahead or, you know, figure out where you are. It was just like, listen to it and see if you... I couldn't figure it out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Some more no- notable things about this book. As, as we've said before, how Dorothy sort of explores different facets of herself by writing different facets of herself into characters in the books. There's a young Dorothy L. Sayers in this novel named Hilary Thorpe, and she's the daughter of one of the wealthy families that lives in this community, And like Dorothy L. Sayers, she wants to be a writer, and she aims to get a scholarship to Oxford. She's
1: very smart.
0: She's very smart. She and Whimsy sort of meet on the level of both being aware of what's happening in the town. And he's
1: very avuncular with her. Mm -hmm. He's the one who gets her. Mm -hmm. He gets that she's smart, that she's different, that she thinks differently, and she wants to make something of her life by becoming a writer. And nobody else really understands it or supports it and yet he instantly gets her
0: right and she is also as a point of interest described as red-haired tall and gawky um, but also with the potential to become a striking looking woman and she did she have a strong straight brow something like that yeah Yeah. so classic Dorothy characteristics exactly exactly Um, here is a little snippet of a conversation that she has with whimsy which again I kind of see as Dorothy writing to herself Mm -hmm. Hmm, said Whimsy. If that's the way your mind works, you'll be a writer one day. Do you think so? How funny. That's what I want to be. But why? Because you have the creative imagination, which works outwards, till finally you'll be able to stand outside your own experience and see it as something you have made, existing independently of yourself. You're lucky. Do you really think so? Hillary looked excited. Yes, but your luck will come more at the end of life than at the beginning, because the other sort of people won't understand the way your mind works. They'll start by thinking you dreamy and romantic, and then they'll be surprised to discover that you're really hard and heartless. They'll be quite wrong both times. But they won't ever know it, and you won't know it at first, and it'll worry you. But that's just what the girls at school say. How did you know? Though they're all idiots, mostly, that is. Most people are, said Whimsy gravely. (laughs) But it isn't kind to tell them so. (laughs) I think that's enough.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And that really gives you a sense of how Dorothy often the sort of the irony, the sarcasm yeah that she often has and ultimately her sense that there aren't very many people that she ever meets who are as smart as she is and that's probably true true Good it's a point of, <laughs> and and she feels that as the burden <laughs> which is <I'm> a,
0: genius <laughs> which yeah
1: exactly which is a little bit which is a little bit uh, narcissistic but uh, but but i can see how she would be she also seems to once she loves somebody she loves them quite holy wholeheartedly mm-hmm. yeah so campanology is not only an interesting aspect of the book it is it is central central to the whole mystery
0: so i guess if if you don't have anything else to add i'll just i'll wrap up by reading a passage that i found really beautiful mm-hmm. so this is when they start ringing for the new year go the bells gave tongue goud saboth john jericho jubilee dimity batty thomas and taylor paul which are the names of the bells. Rioting and exulting, high up in the dark tower, wide mouths rising and falling, brazen tongues clamoring, huge wheels turning to the dance of the leaping ropes. Every bell in her place, striking tunably, hunting up, hunting down, dodging, snapping, laying her blows behind, making her thirds and fourths, working to lead the dance again. Out over the flat, white wastes of Fen, Over the spear-straight, steel-dark dykes and the wind-bent, groaning poplar trees, bursting from the snow-choked louves of the belfry, whirled away southward and westward in gusty blasts of clamor to the sleeping counties went the music of the bells. Little Gowd, Silver Sabbath, Strong John and Jericho, Glad Jubilee, Sweet Dimity, and Old Batty Thomas, with Great Taylor Paul bawling and striding like a giant in the midst of them. Yeah.
1: Yeah, good. That's very, very... That has her energy.
0: Yeah, and so all the the, the shapes that your mouth makes yeah. when you read it, it's really and the all the alliteration and everything just
1: gives you the sense of the bells themselves and, and her the, passion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it looks like we are up to coming to in the home stretch here the, to the penultimate book yes. in the series, which is Gaudy Night. This one,
0: this one is the real like heavy hitter this one's full of stuff
1: well this one I think she intended to be her final the final book
0: in the series mm-hmm. she she was
1: kind of sick of writing about whimsy and wanted to wrap it up and she figured um originally she had wanted to bring Harriet in to marry him off because she figured that then she could end the series because it was very popular and I guess for some reason if they're married... You... Once
0: you're a bachelor, yeah, <laughs> no you... longer a bachelor. Yeah,
1: exactly. I don't I don't quite get that, but I guess for the times that would be how it would work. And so in Gaudi Night, but she had to continue so she could make money. So in Gaudi Night, um, I, we're not really giving anything away to say that they finally get together, they finally decide to marry. Because of the way it ends and everything, it really feels like a period, a final a finality. Uh, we've wrapped it up. And then she i guess she needed more money and she was convinced to do a play about whimsy and harriet being married that followed Gowdy, Gowdy night called busman's honeymoon and that ran it was successful and then they novelized it and so then that ended up being the final book and although i don't dislike busman's honeymoon and it's got good stuff in it it's i really have to say it's weak
0: compared i really think it is
1: there's some good there's some really good stuff in it but it is weak I totally agree. Even compared to the five red herrings, which is generally my least favorite, I think I like that even better than this one. This would be my last on the list. Still readable, still enjoyable, but Gaudy Night really is the pinnacle of their relationship, in my my opinion.
0: Yeah, yeah. So maybe maybe we don't even need to talk about Busman's Honeymoon. Just know that some of it's fun, good yeah, mystery, but uh, and then they they address a little bit more of Whimsy's PTSD and some other things about relationships and marriages but gouty night
1: yeah busman's honeymoon where it's it's basically they go on their honeymoon and there's a murder and then they have to solve it and the thing is is the book you can see the play the structure of the play they barely altered the structure of the play and just added a few
0: so it takes place in mostly in, one room and then there are yeah. inserted scenes where she was like oh, i'll add more material here or more internal stuff
1: yeah where she'll add narration because obviously the play is all dialogue And so that she'll either take some of the dialogue that they did and make it into narration or just like insert narration to explain things in between. It's very stagey. It's theatrical. I I can imagine it'd be much more interesting on the stage.
0: It does address, you know, first time having sex and things like that.
1: Basically just that it was hot and all satisfying.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And
1: if you go back to the prior episodes, I did read her, what was it, her discourse on bedworthiness. And, you know, she makes it clear that Whimsy...
0: Satisfies on all levels. On all levels.
1: So, of course, as we would expect. And she made that clear throughout every book, basically, how, <laughs> how, how capable he was. <laughs> and so, also, his feeling of vulnerability, and now all of a sudden he's not free. And it's like, dude, you've been after her five years. I think you should have thought of that before. You know, and is, is she going to crush him in some way, as women will? And, and her, uh, m- more interesting is her relationship with Bunter.
0: Yeah, that's true. The, there is a lot in Bussman's honeymoon about they're dancing around each other. How, do they res, they respect each other? But like, how do they share their space and
1: and share him?
0: Yes, <laughs> really. How they're going to share his love and loyalty
1: and yeah. taking care of him. And um, so that's it's interesting. Of course, Harriet just wants Bunter to know that he's not ousted.
0: He's an integral member yeah. of the family. But
1: but the thing is, is I think kind of what ultimately came down to is 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 whimsy ever going to do any more detecting now that he's married he kind of promised her that he wouldn't which i I didn't understand that see Mm. that's part of it they make this fake um tension tension that just it doesn't seem to be reason for it so i i guess i'm all up for not really getting into it. i think we've yeah. addressed it
0: there is good bunter dialogue i guess so there I would is. say, like much is pretty a funny better yeah. than you just because of the bunter
1: <laughs> no i love the bunter dialogue yeah. <laughs> I, i'm with you 100 and i definitely think read it i mean mm-hmm. it's, it's it is a good cap off i just i don't know that do you think it's really worth discussing no. uh, okay so what we're going to back now back out of that and go to the penultimate book which is gaudy Night. well it's i think it's the thickest one it's the longest one of all of them and
0: and whimsy doesn't even show up to about halfway through the book right yeah. It's Harriet. It's, she's, again, the protagonist, yeah. essentially. I remember you telling me about this book when I was younger, like in on different occasions attempting to sort of spark my interest in this series. And the, the title, Gowdy Night, like, has been in my mind. And I remember you saying some really beautiful stuff about it before. So I was glad to read it, find that it lived up to that.
1: Well, hopefully I can remember what I said. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you can remember what I said. Uh,
0: yeah, it's Harriet goes back. She's invited
1: back to Oxford for Gowdy Night where the alumna all come back and have a weekend and there's all kinds of festivities and fireworks and mummery and
0: dinner parties. dinner
1: parties and stuff like that. And she has not been back since she graduated and she didn't want to go back because her murder trial for uh, even though she was exonerated in those days, I, I think today you might still understand this, but certainly in those days, she was tarred as a, a tainted woman. She slept with this guy, She out of wedlock, she was accused of murder, and in those days being accused was just as almost bad as being convicted. That taint didn't go away, and so she didn't know she was going to be judged, If you know, she didn't just want to go back and face that at this, to her holy of holies, mm-hmm. this high pristine place of academic inquiry and kind of pure motives, pure scholarship, that kind of thing. And you can tell from the book that Dorothy absolutely values purity and scholarship, the the, the intellect being honest and true and not being swayed by emotion or interest or bias, that the facts are the facts and that you adhere to that. And really that that belief of Dorothy's, that strongly held principle of hers is the core of the book. It's the thing around which the entire mystery and the relationship of Dorothy and Peter are, are wrapped.
0: I think it's a good book for anybody who loved college or like loved some part of college because it just hearkens to that and it's Oxford, so it's like the ultimate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell the Cambridge people that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely. Again, it, it's a lot like um, Nine Tailors and Murder Must Advertise in that it evokes the place and the mm-hmm. atmosphere and the uh, political and social interactions of the Because she
0: was there and she
1: loved it so much. Yeah, she really, really did. And uh, that's the first place she was ever her intellect was seen and acknowledged and she became part of a of a society and a group where she was an equal and a valued member and she kept those friends a lot a lot Mm. of them for the rest of her life which is really cool
0: so harriet goes back for the gaudy night and she finds that the a lot of the people there a lot of the women scholars um she still has these connections with them and so she feels like welcomed um but then they draw her in by asking her to help with an investigation or a mystery on campus.
1: Right, there's a a, apparently a vandal who is using dirty words and nasty slurs and
0: they say like obscene graffiti. Yeah,
1: obscene graffiti and weird, you know, pouring paint on things and I mean nothing nothing violent at that point. And then this is the one novel, again, I'm just going to give that away because it's not really giving anything away. Um, to say this is the one novel where there's no, no, this is the other novel where there's no murder. There are two novels where there's no no actual murder. Right. But there's still a mystery. Right. And then she begins to unravel this using her um, skills as a detector, uh, both in real life and in novels. And ultimately, Peter, of course, has to come and help because only Peter Whimsy can right. actually <laughs> solve the mystery.
0: Um, so they call this Vandal the Poison Pen, and... It's it's actually a very delicate situation. Harriet very sensibly wants to get the police involved, but there's something about the sanctity of the um, the community there um, that what it would reflect on them right. as um, as like women scholars who her generation Harriet's generation had to fight for and Dorothy's generation had to fight for their ability to be recognized as scholars, to get degrees, etc. And so they really can't have anything that would taint. That or create bad publicity about the college, right? Because
1: they might get their money pulled. That it it could really hurt their ability to go to continue. Mm-hmm. So, the very life of the institution and of women's education is implicated here. Exactly. The other thing is, is that it's a pretty complex book in terms of the issues that are brought forward. There's a lot of class issues, as we've talked about before, but the one that, that most stands out in this book is an issue. It's an interesting one because it's not it's not the way we look at it today, the way this issue raises. It's about women. It's about celibacy because the women scholars are all unmarried, and they were expected to be unmarried and stay unmarried. There's one young woman who's getting married who is kind of breaking that. Well, she probably was going to leave and, and be a housewife afterwards. I don't know. They didn't make it clear or if she was going to come back and continue being a professor at the place even though she was married. But you weren't expected to be able to have children and work. That's for sure. So it was about women, celibacy. She doesn't say, oh, well, I guess she does say a little bit All right. It's about lesbianism. It's about what well, they called introversion or whatever and it's assumed that if you're not married you're celibate
0: right which is even in the book it's shown that's not really the case especially with the undergraduates who are fraternizing with the boys all yeah, the but, time yeah but but it doesn't
1: mean they're being they're having sex it's true yeah, yeah, they're probably it's kind of implicated that they're not it was expected that they wouldn't be and that Harriet then comes in as a single woman who's had sex right. essentially and that that creates problems and they talk a lot about that it's a very introverted and kind of inbred community that becomes a tinderbed of violence and
0: Freudian impulses and Freudian and...
1: impulses and like a nest of writhing vipers underneath <laughs> you know yeah and that the one person who is or the two people really who are completely above it are the two purest intellects uh, that they are completely dedicated to their intellectual life and they come at it with a dispassion that's Absolutely pristine. Otherwise, uh, you know, there's the, the people who are driven by their celibacy and repress their sexual urges they're and become bitter. They're ne- yeah, bitter, they're. Yeah, angry. And, and then we get ones where they kind of. Is she indicating they're a lesbian or that it's mm-hmm. you know, men? Or, you, you know, so there's also that unspoken. Influence, or mm-hmm. you know, or, or assumption maybe about women who are all living together. That oh, there must be something going on there, and it, it's very complicated.
0: Yeah, and there are servants there, of course, that have this different perspective because they're they're serving and they also have more like sort of pragmatic values about taking care of their family and everything, and they have they have their own perspectives on watching these women do a different kind of job and right. not and have families. And they're pretty
1: much all married and, yeah. and have kids, like you said. So they're, this idea of these women living in this sort of monastic lifestyle is, they're contemptuous, really, of that. Or, or some of them are. and mm-hmm. don't They don't really get it. So it's it's very rife with that whole mm-hmm. thing. And so it's very interesting to read it. But you have to step back out of today's particular viewpoint. Yeah. Yes, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. And then, uh, then when Whimsy comes in, Dorothy gets a chance to see him in his... Harriet. <laughs> oh, Jesus.
0: <laughs> They've become one. They, become, they are one. Uh,
1: she gets to see him in his uh, true environment as yeah. a scholar and that he took two firsts and, you know, he can talk, academic talk with anybody. And, and he, he's able he's to come. kind and gracious to everyone. Right. And he's totally respectful, and this is, I think, the thing that's one of the most important things to Dorothy, and also to Harriet, is that he comes in with no snobbery or contempt for women and women's minds and women's Mm -hmm. thinking. And so he treats them as equals and betters, if they are better. He is very much, even though she brings in a lot about his class and his assumption of privilege, Mm -hmm. she also does point out that he is able to honor and respect on merit other people, regardless of their their gender. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of pleasant to see. But there is one bit I really like where They're having a meeting and Whimsy's in there, and there are just certain women who are just fucking vibrating. And (laughs) he says, didn't you know, it's like bringing Match to Tinder. (laughs) He's bound to have an explosion.
0: (laughs) Good stuff. I know. It's fun. There's a lot of fun stuff, too. And you get to be a little gleeful about the romance. And there's all this, there's politics, too, about um, Harriet's relationship with Whimsy when he comes in. And, like, who trusts her, who doesn't, who's, like, into Whimsy, whatever. Who's jealous of her. Yeah. Yeah, the whole deal. Exactly. And then how that might fit into
1: them being the Poison pen, mm-hmm. Because they never know if it's directed to Harriet or not.
0: Right. Because she She also, received a letter, yeah, yeah, at the very beginning.
1: Yeah. And so um, th- there is some good writing. And, and there's a lot of time for introspection where she examines herself and her life and why she chose the past she did and, and about whimsy and whether they can ever be together. Because Dorothy does, again, talk about can the brain and the heart ever align and be found satisfaction in one relationship which is the whole thing about the school can the brain and the heart are women allowed to and even men at that time often tended to be um, not, maybe not celibate but unmarried and so can you ever have that earthy emotion sensuality sensuality and have the intellect and can they ever be aligned together and she was always She always saw her relationship with whimsy as being drawn to him because she did say that she would, if she ever succumbed to him, she would just be be consumed by her, her feelings and her sensuality. She saw that as odds because in her head she's going, he's a different class. I kind of don't respect his assumption of privilege. Or at least she was projecting onto him the entire society's assumption that she was lesser as a woman. And she couldn't really see, as Dorothy keeps bringing up in the books, that that he's not doing that. He really sees her as an equal and he does treat her as an equal and and as an equal not like deferentially but really as an equal. She sees her relationship with him as her body and her heart wanting to come together with him but her mind and her intellect telling her it's not a good idea, there's going to be more dirt flung at you, It's going to be bad for him. If you care about him, he's going to be tainted by association with you. One, she's also afraid of losing her work, of not being able to write and not having an intellectual and independent self that she would be as
0: very reasonable
1: as they did in those days yeah <laughs> yeah very reasonable as as happened in those days you got married and you, be, you became the man's possession if you were the woman obviously it was called coverture and basically in law and in fact supposedly you were just subsumed in your husband's being that's where in the old days how it used to be mr. and mrs. john smith that comes from that principle is that a, a woman didn't have her first name out there because she became hidden behind the veil sort of like being in perda mm-hmm. uh, behind the veil of her husband's being that is all all there and it's very real at that time so that becomes a lot of the introspection that she's struggling with and she talks to some of the scholars and eventually resolves but there's uh, a few things to read in this book that are really cool there's one point where she's feeling very nostalgic and effective and she goes up on the hill and is looking down at the school and she's writing poetry which she hadn't written in a long time and there's just one little line that I just thought was so beautiful and she said a detached pentameter echoing out of nowhere was beating in her ears seven marching feet, a pentameter and a half, to that still center where the spinning world sleeps on its axis. And that's kind of how she saw Oxford as being. It's a still center in the midst of a spinning world. I thought that was really quite beautiful. And then there was another bit like the passage you read about the change ringing. And so this is where she describes the environment of the quad, which is the grassy space in the middle of the buildings. And she describes, so summer term set in, sun flecked and lovely. A departing April whirled on wind-spurred feet towards the splendor of May. Tulips danced in the fellow's garden. A fringe of golden green shimmered upon the secular beaches, beaches being trees. The boats put out upon the share between the budding banks, and the wide reaches of the Isis were strenuous with practicing eights. That is, rowers would go out in teams of eight. So anyway, it just kind of gives you a a very beautiful, sun-flecked, golden oh and then there's a they do a lot of punting in this
0: punting on the river <laughs> punting on the river
1: and punting is basically taking a boat out and they have a big long stick and because the river isn't very deep they use the stick to uh steer a less
0: elegant format of gondoliering <laughs> yeah that's right gondoliering
1: exactly and so the woman's supposed to lie in the boat with her hand dangling in the water and the man does the polling but not always and at some point uh, he and harriet i think it's the most romantic and and sensual (laughs) passage in all of her book they go punting together in this in the golden sun i know there was just one little bit i thought was cute where where there's a choice between harriet getting to do the punting and whimsy and she says he can do it and he says um admirable woman You have allowed me to spread the tale of vanity before the pair of deserted Ariadnees. Would you now prefer to be independent and take the poll? I admit it is better fun to punt than to be punted, and that a desire to have all the fun is nine-tenths of the law of chivalry. Is it possible that you have a just and generous mind? I will not be outdone in generosity. I will sit like a perfect lady and watch you do the work. It's nice to see things done well. And, of course, we know that Whimsy does everything well.
0: That's some nice flirting there. Yeah, 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 exactly. So she can watch his, his manly physique yes. as he stands in the boat. And then they sit they sit by the river, and there's a whole passage where she's just kind of looking at him because he's fallen asleep or something, and she's looking at his ear. It's pretty hot. It is quite hot, is it? Yeah. And yet it's discreet, it's not in any
1: way um, lurid or um, what is it? Explicit. Mm -hmm. It's not explicit in any way. She's not checking his package or anything (laughs) like that, right? Right. It's quite like a poem by Keats or some romantic, yet full of real sensuality. Oh, here's a bit where she talks about the meeting of the brain and the intellect. Could there ever be any alliance between the intellect and the flesh? It is this business of asking questions and analyzing everything that sterilized and stultified all one's passions. Experience perhaps had a formula to get over this difficulty. One kept the bitter, tormenting brain on one side of the wall and the languorous, sweet body on the other, and never let them meet. So that if you were made that way, you could argue about loyalties in an Oxford common room and refresh yourself elsewhere with, say, Viennese singers, presenting an unruffled surface on both uh, sides of yourself. Easy for a man, and possible even for a woman, if one avoided foolish accidents like being tried for murder. But to seek to force incompatibles into a compromise was madness. One should neither do it nor be party to it. And then she goes on to talk about how Peter is saying that it can be done. But then she's saying, well, he's the one who can split himself in two and be all Oxfordonian. And then he goes on to into Europe and disports himself with Viennese singers, but that you know, she could have done it, but she ended up getting tried for murder. So
0: I find that kind of passage, the the sort of thing, highly relatable. Like these are things that I've thought about more or less in the similar way, you know, when I'm trying to understand what I want out of a relationship or how to cope with like being an independent person and also having feelings for someone. Yeah, exactly. Because you can get swept
1: up in that initial passion and uh, wanting to
0: Conform, conform to each, each other and yeah. yeah and
1: meet and 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 then a few months down the road when that wears out and it always does and now suddenly you're like oh I gave away too much and now I I want it back yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was great for then but not you know and people don't understand that that is that is how it works so it's a cycle yeah. it is it always works that way because the relationship changes and it does need to blossom and change but people think well why did that other go away? There's something wrong because we're still not in that same place. I think that really encapsulates what the issue is in the novel that she's dealing with on every level, both as exemplified by the women in Oxford and by what the poison pen is accusing of and the relationship of Whimsy and, and Bane. There's a lot in this book, uh, there, but there's a lot of punting, There's a lot of tea. A lot of tea, a lot of midnight... Yeah, uh, midnight running around trying to... And a lot of midnight running around trying to get get the poison pen. Yeah. (laughs) And and control that. So there's a lot of good stuff there. And then, again, like I said, this is really not giving anything away because you know it's going Mm -hmm. to happen, it has to happen, is they end up getting together and she agrees to marry him finally. At the end, she, she comes to that point. And what I really like, and this is why I know, or at least I feel certain that she intended this... To be the last book. The last book is the way it ends. Yeah, the more I think of it, the more I really wish it had ended there. The way she ends it is by showing their absolute perfection together; that they are perfect for each other. That they really, really, really do meet in the way that she would want to have her life met. And and that is no, I won't. I won't read it because I, I don't think we want to. But I will say what is adorable and people would consider it probably nerdy and hipsterish today <laughs> but I think it's, it's wonderful for them is that he proposes to her in Latin and she accepts in Latin <laughs> and that's that, it's total perfection of everything that she's been getting to in this book it it, it, it just it closes it out with a happy ending that is Mm Well-earned, well-earned. And you don't expect, oh, it's gonna be woohoo we're just tripping through the fields. You don't need all that, but you don't need to know that because it is the meeting of true minds and true hearts at the same time. So it does bring it together, especially since his proposal in Latin brings the heart, that in and of itself brings the head and the heart together,
0: (laughs) right? There you go. Yeah,
1: and then there's an afterword, a postscript, his uncle, Peter Delagarte, uh, who taught him everything, who who set him up with his first courtesan, so he could learn how to become that great bed bedworthy partner. Right. So he knows everything. Basically, has a, a postscript just describing kind of how the whole thing worked out, and they got married, and blah blah blah. And that, to me, is like I said, I suggest you still read Busman's Honeymoon. It's worth it. But well, I don't know. The second time through, I might not read Busman's Honeymoon again because this is <laughs> you perfection. do what you want. Okay. Yeah. No, I just realized that. Yeah. I really think that that. Yeah, she just did one too many. This is perfection. Now that I think about it more and more, thank you, Listener. loyal listeners. Because I wouldn't have, co- I wouldn't have gotten that. I would have, wouldn't have understood it unless I had been talking to you about it, right? Isn't that awesome? <laughs> totally. Okay, so uh, I think we're at the
0: end of uh, the books. We've got some odds and ends because we really did try to do a very thorough immersion into the media of whimsy right the extended media world of universe of whimsy
1: and in the show notes that we have like all the shows and the dates and stuff like that um, so really uh, there was I don't think we we're able to get the very first whimsy adaptation uh, it was done in England and Dorothy maybe I should keep saying this the sh-
0: that's the one that was silent right with the trunk and everything oh yeah it, it had nothing really to do with the, no. any of the plots of the books at all yeah
1: it was pretty horrible um and, and uh, again
0: the title Bunter was an old fat man <laughs> that's
1: right god see i wiped it from my brain and the title of it is i don't know it's on our show notes but um maybe you could skip you just look it. At it it's, it's terrible <laughs> but the, the important thing is is that um she sold the rights to have the film made and they took it and they changed like they, yeah they changed everything i think whimsy was more i don't know whimsy was not charming at all, and it didn't have anything to do with any of the books and they changed everything around and she hated it hated it, hated it so much and then um it was much later in the thirties that uh they Hollywood came knocking, and this was now the talkies she let them have the rights to Busman's Honeymoon, which they made starring really one of my favorites, um Robert Montgomery if anybody used to watch bewitched with elizabeth montgomery this was her dad and i really like robert montgomery he was a stage actor very good looking kind of snappy guy snappy dialogue very 20s 30s kind of guy and um he was in it and as whimsy and it was all right but it wasn't it was kind of cute but it wasn't particularly
0: capture the essence of whimsy no
1: and i, I didn't yeah I, so i'm not recommending it necessarily unless you really want to be a completist but I, well what i thought was when i imagined robert montgomery playing the role even though he didn't look anything like whimsy he's just really straight up good looking and dark haired The his snappiness his in a lot of films he would play kind of the juvenile lead where he was the young man about of town kicking up his heels wearing the top hat snappy dialogue you know being kind of goofy he wasn't he was just Regular, like a regular person just walking through this role. And I thought, well, if he brought that other persona, he would have been perfect. It would have been really good. He would have been able to take the seriousness and then a little bit of that whimsy, the whimsy, 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 the whimsy whim- whimsy's whimsy, and uh, bring it in there, but he didn't. So, yeah, it was like, eh, we just wanted you to know they existed. But then Dorothy was not selling this rights again because she hated 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 having her things made for film then they did uh they did the play as i said and that was okay because she wrote it and then um after she died many years later in the 1970s or 80s they did a tv series and so the estate gave them the rights to certain books and so ian carmichael was cast as lord peter whimsy in a bbc adaptation of several of the books and i don't like those i watched part of it he doesn't look like whimsy First of all, he's way too old. Play, he just plays a guy, being a British guy. So he didn't have the charm or the sex appeal or anything of whimsy. And then later on um, in the 1990s, the BBC did uh, other books that hadn't been okayed by the original. A production and those would have been those were strong poison they were basically the harriet Vane books
0: exactly strong yeah.
1: poison have his carcass and Gaudy night and they didn't they tried but they failed to get the rights to busman's honeymoon and uh in that case edward P- petherbridge aka peth uh, apparently <laughs> <laughs> uh, played lord peter whimsy and he was perfect he was he himself even admits he was about 10 years too old he would have been better but he looks exactly like whimsy should look uh, and they made his hair the right color, so he had the straw-colored hair, and he has the no the long nose, and he's got the uh, the way of speaking, and he's got the sort of the the slim build and the not too tall physique. And uh, I think he's got sex appeal myself. I, I think so too. I agree. In, in yeah. a very English, in a very subdued, Sliver withheld. Liver of the wrist. In, yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh no, no. Shoot the cuffs. Yes. Uh, And that's a term that Petherbridge used when he talked about his passion that we expressed by shooting the cuffs, which means it's sort of like you stretch out your arm a little bit and the cuffs of your shirt underneath the jacket kind of pop out a little bit. (laughs) They're brilliant. I love them. I love that series. I really, really highly recommend it. I think you'll really get a sense of a great actor. Petherbridge is a really excellent actor um, he got a Tony Award for playing Newman Noggs in the Nicholas Nickleby uh, plays. So good. It's so good. That's another thing we recommend is the nickel, Nicholas Nickleby, but we won't go into that now. Maybe, maybe we could talk about that separately. But he's a, a wonderful actor, and he's pr- a perfect whimsy. And they picked the perfect Harriet Vane, and that was played by Harriet Walter.
0: Yeah. Harriet, right Harriet, there, Harriet. Yeah.
1: And she's got, the, she's got the kind of dark, somewhat frizzy hair. Uh, She wears in a bob, and she's got the straight across eyebrows, and she's good looking enough, but she's not a beauty. Mm -hmm. She's interesting looking. She's very attractive, Mm -hmm. and has a very strong personality and face in the in the series. And so they they go together so well, and I think that then they play the parts as two very intelligent actors, you know, coming into something. You can tell that they're as professionals. Working together to create the connection and the tension between the characters. Do you want to talk about bunter?
0: It's a great series um, Bunter
1: I turn bunter over to you. You're oh. the bunter expert <laughs>
0: the bunter in this series. He he is very good-looking He's tall pretty young. Um, he's and I'm sure the actor is quite a bit younger than Peth.
1: Yeah, and um, he and he should and of course he should be probably close
0: to the same age But Peth is playing ten years younger than himself. Yeah, yeah um, I would say he's he's like an eight out of ten Bunter. He's like not my he's not he's not quite gruff enough and not quite masculine enough, even right. though Bunter's also very polished. Yeah, and polished um, and
1: sensitive, but there's there's a yeah, and this guy he was a little bit more
0: Suave. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Kind of exactly. And, and deferential. But he, he got some of the edge, like the playfulness between Whimsy and Bunter that exists. Yes. And and the
1: irony of kind of like tongue in cheekishness of his delivery of these Milord, like saying, oh, would, uh, would uh, your lordship like a uh, beverage? And he'd say, yes, uh, Banteur, and he'd say, very good, my lord, very good, my lord. You know, it would be like every other word was my yeah. lord or your lordship. And he always, he did put a bit of, not overtly, but just a little bit of a wry twist on it, knowing that this is it, like almost, these are roles they're playing or games they're playing between the two of them, mm-hmm. of him being the servant and whimsy being the master. Because Whimsy couldn't do without Bunter. So Bunter's pretty good. And it's interesting, I found out, I think his name is Robert Moran is the name of the actor who played Bunter. That actor, he died really young. He was like in his 40s when he died. But he had been married to, uh, this is one of the things I like, Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Mm -hmm. If you know him, he was a a silent and talky movie star son of Douglas Fairbanks Sr. Big (laughs) heartthrob. Big were very handsome, and uh, had a big long affair with Marlene Dietrich. See our previous Marlene Dietrich trifecta. It's all connected. It's all connected. He was married to Douglas Fairbanks Jr.'s daughter.
0: Woo!
1: <laughs> That's exciting. <laughs> and uh, and then the Miss, the Miss Clemson. Now the Miss Clemson in this series is a ten out of ten. She's great. She is the perfect Miss Clemson because she has all the flightiness. Yet underneath, you know, don't mess with this broad. (laughs) She will take you out. (laughs) She's tiny and, oh, it's just very, very good. And his mother is is well-played. But I have to say, and Whimsy's, uh, his attire, his wardrobe is... Quite excellent in yeah. this series, yeah. The capes. And, the, too, yeah. and he wears Oxford bags, which was very exciting to me. What is I, that? <laughs> those are the pants in the in the 1920s. Oxford bags were like the thing. And nobody knows exactly how they started, but they started around Oxford. And they were, these pants became totally popular that were like, they weren't like bell-bottoms. Remember, if you remember the thin leg and then the big cuff, yeah. the they're big all the way from the top down. <laughs> and somebody says because they were told that they couldn't wear um, knickers. And so in order to get around that or to raise their finger to it, that the students would put, would get these pants, they had to be really loose in the leg, over the knickers, so they're still wearing the knickers. <laughs> but they had, they had the long pants on. That's, that was, that's one of the Could theories that's knickers. put out there. as, as the thing. But, but what happened is, is, is that they're just big, wide, the palazzo pants mm. that women wear, and that they're, they're wide from the top and they go all the way down, and they did end up getting like crazy, crazy wide, like, like, you know, that the bottom would be like uh, two foot in, in diameter wow. and stuff. Now, he wears the bags that are probably just more normal bags that they would wear. But I never understood that. I always thought bags just meant like regular old slacks, trousers, whatever. Huh. I didn't realize they were a particular style. But there is a scene, that is awesome, where he wears the the bag. So we'll look for that. And then there's another scene. Well, there's several scenes where he wears this, this cap. And it looks really, like, way gigantic for his head. It's really funny. Even though I, you know, I, I love him. I think he's sexy as hell. He's great, great um, uh, wh- a whimsy, but that hat. It's got, Bunter, Bunter was not on the job. And Did he Did he That's have funny. a hat where it had the little leash, the little hat leash?
0: Maybe. I don't know. I don't remember. I'm not quite as um, on the hats as you are.
1: Yeah. Errol Flynn wore one in uh, Gentleman Jim*, where he wore a straw hat, mm. and, and they would have these little leashes that would stick to the that would go through the brim because the the hats. I mean, I always wonder how they keep them on their head. Yeah. Any stiff breeze is just gonna blow it right off your head. Okay. So maybe he didn't have that. But anyway, look for the Oxford bags. <laughs> that's that's really cool. Uh, And and also, uh, you'll be able to see details from the novels, even though they had to change things around and compress things and get rid of various characters in order to fit in the time frames. There are a lot of little details, clothing and furniture and things like that, from which you really, really like. And is there any other media for whimsy? I don't think so. No? Okay. Hope you all enjoyed this. Let us know if you have any questions. Yeah, comments. For us. If there's any anything you'd like us to try to cover, we'll certainly consider it. We'll certainly <laughs> look into any movies. And if you give us a review, a uh, five star rating and a review, uh, you we will do uh, a movie review, of any, a movie of your choice, as long as it's not pornography or horror.
0: All right. Okay. And, yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe you can still propose the title. No, no, we will do
1: it. We will do it for sure, as long as it's not pornography or horror. <laughs> now we can't do a book because a book would be too long to read. But yeah. But we would but in terms of uh literature books we'll consider
0: signing off.
1: If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to Foiblespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks
0: for listening.